0: Well, this morning we are going to begin our journey through 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if any of you have read 1 Corinthians 7 before, or maybe read it right before the sermon this week, if you've been in it at all, you would have known that it is filled with all sorts of practical advice from the Apostle Paul and guidance the Lord through him advice that might raise all sorts of questions for you maybe even confusion some of that is because what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is very much directed towards their (coughs) specific situation and we get to listen in for example In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26, Paul makes reference in his letter to something called this present crisis. What's that? They would know we have to dig in the ancient records that we know of Corinth to try to figure out what's this crisis that's going on that Paul references. Many scholars, men who spend their lives digging into these things, um, and share their findings with us, think that there was a great famine around A.D. 51, a lack of food, that was causing a huge crisis. And that was driving some of Paul's burden, that people stay in whatever way, place God has called them. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. Because of the current crisis, you're better off. We'll be talking about that in a few weeks. We are going to be working through 1 Corinthians 7 in three steps. So today, we're going to be talking about Paul's guidance on marriage, and in particular on the topic of sex in marriage. Next week, the sermon is going to be on singleness and Paul's teachings on singleness. And then the third week will be on divorce and remarriage. Not just in Paul, but in the Bible as a whole. And we'll be talking about that topic. So today, we're talking about marriage. Now, I want to say one thing by way of, you know, preference, okay? Um... Well, maybe two things. First off, as a pastor, right, we, we preach through books of the Bible. This isn't naturally a, a text that I would wake up and say, I can't wait to <laughs> preach on this or that, right? Or divorce and remarriage. I don't think you wake up wanting to preach on that. But we need to know what God says about these things so that we can live our lives in ways that honor Him. And so I am excited to preach the Word. I'm humbled. By the task of preaching texts like First Corinthians 7. Uh, so I appreciate your prayers. I know some of you have been praying for me and I, I thank you for that. The second thing I'll say by way of um, preliminaries is uh, we are going to get to the good news of the gospel about Jesus like I'm called to preach Jesus. I'm not going to preach Jesus till the very end when we go to the table. Because in this passage, it's about the complete giving of a husband and wife's bodies to each other in marriage. Jesus gave his body completely to us on the cross. And the scriptures call us, his people, symbolically his bride, not in a sexual sense but in a spiritual sense. And so we'll talk about that at the very end as we close with the Lord's Supper. So, let's get started. I'm going to read this morning from the New American Standard Bible. So, you might notice just a couple little differences from this and maybe the NIV or the ESV. Uh, It's a more wooden translation, and I think it's going to help us here. All right. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 7. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch, literally touch, a woman. Uh, The translation you're probably reading, most likely, if you're not reading the NASB, is, is simply going to try to convey in English what they think the word touch means, have sexual relations with her, something like that, which is fine. Um, Paul goes on in verse 2, and he says, but, guys, because of immoralities, going on, plural, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to the wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession. I'm going to concede this, not, not command, uh, Yet I wish that all men were even as myself, I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So we're going to work through 1 Corinthians 7, 1-7 in two basic movements or steps. First, we're going to look at the Corinthian slogan or the thing they wrote, about, wrote to him about in verse 1. And then... For the rest of our time, we'll look at Paul's response, which is basically four things he says. So first, the Corinthian slogan, it is good for men not to touch women. All right, that's literally what it says. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And that's concerning the things that they wrote about. Notice two things. First, they'd written to Paul about something. They asked Paul a question. This is a big shift in the book of Corinthians, at verse 1 of chapter 7. Up till now, Paul has been addressing rumors and reports that he's heard about them. from Some from Chloe's household. This lady named Chloe who had a household of people and they gave reports to Paul about all the chaos going on in the Corinthian church. All was not well, so he's been... Writing a letter saying, guys, guys, keep your eyes on Jesus. You're, what is going on? And now he's addressing a certain letter that they had wrote to him. Maybe, maybe Chloe's people who went and visited Paul and told him about all this brought the letter. Okay, we, we don't know exactly, but he's saying about the letter. Um, it is good for men not to touch women. Seems like he's referencing something they said in the letter. It's good for men not to touch a woman, right, Paul? And by touch here, they're not talking about handshakes. Okay? This touching is a euphemism. Just like we call death passing away, It's it's a euphemism for some kind of sexual contact with women. That's why the NIV, for example, translates the word touch with have. Sex. Sexual relations. But here's the tricky thing about this way of translating the verse. Why would the Corinthians say that men shouldn't touch women sexually? Were they really saying that all men in the church should just steer totally clear of sex? Become monks? Um, Some folks wonder maybe that's what's going on. though is this strong wave of asceticism coming through the church where they were all just steering clear from sex and marriage altogether. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. Um, and so in studying this passage and some more recent commentaries on it, guys who write books about these things, um, I've become convinced this statement is talking about a specific kind of sexual activity going on in Roman culture that was wrong. Paul agrees that it's wrong. In Roman culture, men did not generally enjoy regular sex with their wives. In fact, the word joy was not really attached to sex in marriage. This is not Jewish culture. This is Roman culture. Um, Wives were for childbearing, not pleasure. Men had wives to produce legitimate children to inherit their stuff. And wives played a key role, obviously, in having those children and maintaining the household order. For pleasure <laughs> in sex, Roman men frequently engage in activity referred to in the ancient Greek literature that we have available to us as touching. Touching women. He touched his slave girl. He touched his mistress. He touched this Sexual activity done by men for the pleasure of men is totally focused on men. Men touch women for their pleasure. And marriage was not seen as intended for pleasurable sex. It was a business relationship. In the this is again, this is not Jewish culture, this is Roman culture. For example, the ancient Greek—and I should say Greek culture as well—the ancient Greek statesman of Athens, a man named Demosthenes, um, try to pronounce that right, writing over 300 years before the time of Jesus, once said, "Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines—that's like a slave girlfriend—for the, the daily care of our persons." but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. So here Demosthenes is summing up the popular winds of the day, and this was the same in Roman culture. So it would probably be best to translate the Corinthian slogan found in verse 1 as, It is good for a man not to use a woman for sexual gratification. Or something like, It's good for a man not to... Have sex with a woman for the sake of pleasure, which in that context would mean extramarital touching. Okay? Now, notice, Paul doesn't just flat out disagree with the Corinthians' slogan here, what they're saying, what they said in their letter. But he's going to qualify it for them and teach them more about this topic. He's also going to say some things that are just downright crazy countercultural in that day. So here's Paul's fourfold response. First, remember, the Corinthians are saying, it's good that we don't do this, right, Paul? Because Paul obviously has something to say about all the things. They're doing a lot of touching in Corinth, right? We've seen that. Chapter 5, a man's having his father's wife in chapter 6. They're engaging the prostitutes at these Banquets, these drunken orgies that they're a part of. Like, touching is happening. And so they're saying, it's good we don't do that, right, Paul? And Paul's going to say, but, he's going to clarify it. Verse 2, he starts by saying, and here I'll give an overview of his response. So in the four-part response, here's kind of a flyover of verses 2 to 6, 2 to 7. First, he's going to say, verse 2, marital sex is the alternative to engaging in immoralities. He's saying, actually, guys, you should be having sex with your wives for pleasure, not just for procreation. Then in verses 3 to 4, he pulls out the real shocker. He says that it isn't a one-way street either, where husbands touch and use their wives as a way to release or a means of pleasure. For them? No. In verses 3 to 4, Paul actually says to the husbands, your body belongs to your wife just as much as she belongs to you. You belong to each other. In verses 5 to 6, Paul goes on to make a third point in his defense for sex in marriage regularly by saying it's a tool for fighting temptation towards sexual sin in verse 5, in verses 6 and 7, he concludes, though, by saying singleness would be the ideal, but each has their own gift from the Lord. According to his wisdom, he wishes all were like him. What is he like? He's single. Okay, so we'll jump into the first response found in verse 2. First... Marital sex is the God-ordained or alternative to immoralities, plural, that are going on. Which means wrong ways of engaging in sex. Listen again to verse 2. This is the literal translation. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to literally have her own husband. Your translations are just attempting to express. If you don't have a NASB and it says something a little different, it's it's good. It's just trying to spell that out a little bit more, what that means, to have your wife or have your husband. This is a response to the Corinthian slogan. It's good for men not to touch women, to use women for sexual pleasure. And Paul doesn't say, actually, guys, it's really good for men to touch women. He says, guys... Because you're all touching women anyway, you should be, literally the word is, having each other. And the NIV is on the right track when it translates having as having sex with each other, with your spouse. Paul is saying there is a proper way, a God-given way, to engage in regular, pleasurable sexual activity, and it is with one's spouse. Instead of using the bodies of women for pleasure outside of marriage, and even young boys in that day and age, men should have their wives. But, lest the Corinthians think that this, which they would have automatically thought, that wives then existed solely for the pleasure of the husbands, Paul adds this bombshell. And he's going to elaborate on it more. Wives should have their husbands verses 3 and 4 elaborate on this which is Paul's second main movement husbands and wives your bodies belong to each other just like we're going to see Jesus' body belongs to his church he's given himself to us and we his church his body belong Mm -hmm. to him This total giving, holding nothing back. You belong to each other. Listen to verses 3 to 4. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What Paul writes here would have sent shockwaves through the ancient world of Corinth. Not so much in the Jewish world. The Jews were steeped in the teachings, steeped but soaked in the teachings of the law of Moses about marriage. And in this case, the, the, the teaching that would be behind some of what Paul is saying here is Exodus. Chapter 21, in particular, verse 10. We'll be looking at that passage in more detail in a couple weeks when we talk about divorce and the marriage. It's a key text that does not get talked about anywhere near enough. For now, just know that Exodus 21 is a key place where Paul's understanding of sex in marriage comes from and the obligation that spouses have to give themselves each other with their bodies. So, here in 1 Corinthians, the Jewish scholar Paul, turned follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, tells husbands in Corinth that regular sex is a duty that they must fulfill with their wives. She owns your body. Which might seem strange to the stereotypical West, western husband who may wish that his wife was more willing at times, but what Paul says here is certainly strange to the Corinthians. What Paul says in verse 4 is even more startling, though, even to Jews, though again it's deeply rooted in Paul's own Old Testament theology. He starts by saying that the wife's body belongs to her husband, she's his property. His possession, which would maybe sound twisted to our Western ears, but then he counters and balances it out completely by saying the same thing about the husband's body belonging to the wife. To which someone in the ancient world would say, Whoa, hey, are you saying my woman owns me? That's exactly what Paul's saying. The wife's body belongs to her husband and her husband's body belongs to her. This idea flows from the Bible's teaching in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This does not mean that both humans joining as one lose their individual uniqueness, the distinctiveness of themselves as persons, but that when these two persons who are different come together, they are joined in life so closely that they're to function as one body with one common purpose and one shared mission in life to honor God and take care of his world In his way. And the act of sexual intercourse between a man and his wife is a regular way of reenacting that one flesh union that is to encompass all of life. So I'll say it again. If you're married today, remember, singleness is coming next week. Your body belongs to your wife, man, and wife. Your body belongs to your husband. What you put in your body is each other's business. What you do with your body is each other's business. Where you go is each other's business. What you say is each other's business. You belong to each other. Yes, the husband, Paul will say in Ephesians, Colossians, is the head of this two-part body. The leader, just as Jesus is the head of his body, the church. Well, why does he have to lead? Because it reflects on Christ in his relationship with the church. God created a husband and a wife with a purpose, not just to point to themselves, but to point beyond to the relationship between Jesus and his people. But just because the husband is the leader doesn't nullify what Paul says here. The leader belongs to the wife, and the wife belongs to the husband. They belong to each other. There's a beautiful equality expressed here, a mutual sharing, total sharing, That goes both ways, a sharing of all of life that the act of sexual intercourse, the physical joining, symbolizes a complete giving of oneself to another. Not just selfishly, I want pleasure from you, but I want to give you pleasure even as you are giving me joy. It is a beautiful thing. That's so easily twisted. Let's look at the third part of Paul's response. Third, sex and marriage is a means for fighting temptation towards sexual immorality. Verse 5 basically restates and expands on what Paul says in verse 2. I'll read the verse now. Stop depriving one another... Except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Here, perhaps, is one of the more startling commands in the New Testament. People might read and say, Wait, that's in the Bible? Christians, Paul is saying, if you're married, stop depriving each other of sex. But if you do put sex on hold, agree on it together, which means you need to talk about it. You know how many couples don't talk about sex? They only fight about it, right? Talk about it, says Paul. Try to talk about it honestly, openly. Agree on it. Do it for a set time, not indefinitely. And do it, in this instance, Using Paul's wisdom, he, he says, do it for a spiritual path, fast. He's using an illustration. For example, one reason you might want to is as a spiritual fast, so that you can devote yourself to prayer. But Paul says, come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you with sexual immorality, and you cave in because of lack of self-control over your body. So here in these verses, Paul is combining his knowledge of the Old Testament law and wisdom material with um, the specific situation of that day. One example found in the wisdom literature of the Bible is Proverbs 5, 12, 15 to 21. I'll just read snippets of that. Proverbs 5. This is the Bible. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. He's speaking to a young man here. He's telling him, drink from your own well an illusion to having sex with your wife and not someone else. The writer goes on to explain Proverbs. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The Bible mandates, the Bible celebrates, and the Bible everywhere encourages sex in marriage. The Bible is not a prudish book, obviously. Sex between a husband and wife is not only a way of bringing children into the world, but a means of celebrating and rejoicing in this one flesh union that God himself designed between a husband and a wife. Now, when I as a pastor read a verse like verse 5, a verse that says, Do not deprive your spouse from sex. I have an immediate shepherding pastoral concern that this verse not be abused or used as a tool to manipulate a marriage partner into having sex with their spouse. Paul is laying down a general principle here. Of course, there are exceptions. More, we'll talk about some of those in a minute. Furthermore, the reason that Paul encourages the Corinthians to channel their out of control sexual desires into their marriage, it actually doesn't reflect well on the Corinthians. Marriage is a means of fighting sexual temptation. In other words, if you are feeling strong desires to have sex, there is a natural, God ordained, God governed outlet for that desire. Marriage and regular sex with one woman. one man but as every honest husband and wife knows marriage does not fix lust and out of control desire your spouse is not your Savior from sexual sin Jesus is our rescuer from lust by capturing our hearts and working in us self-control by the power of his Holy Spirit this is where Paul is going to go next yes Regular sex in marriage is one way to fight temptations like sexual sin. Because verse 5, he says, you lack self-control. But Paul is actually saying this as a concession. Like, I'll allow it because you're undisciplined, you're crazy, you're out of control. But this is not the ideal. Why is the married life not ideal? Well, Paul says, I wish you were all single, like me, like Jesus. single. And absolutely self-controlled. And Paul views his status as a single self-controlled man to be a great gift from the Lord. Sure, it had its challenges. I'm sure Paul struggled at times. But it was a gift, just like marriage is a gift from the Lord that can come with immense challenges as well. Especially, and we'll see this in a couple weeks, in a time of crisis this is Paul's, this moves to Paul's fourth main point. Singleness would be better for everyone but each has his own gift from the Lord. I'll read these verses It says, but I say this by way of concession, not of command yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am however each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that This statement is perhaps a startling statement to you Paul's wish that everybody was going to be single like him in this context. That would have been stunning in Paul's day as well. In Roman culture, men were actually socially penalized for not getting married. It was expected. It was one social duty. Nowadays, marriage isn't necessarily prior- prioritized in our culture, but having a partner or your dream soulmate— Everybody dreams of that, at least most people. Next week, again, we're going to talk about singleness at length. Paul views singleness as a gift from the Lord. He also views marriage as a gift from the Lord, both with unique blessings and challenges. But this is important to see in this verse, and we'll talk about this. We'll also talk about some of the teaching of Jesus on singleness that gets a little misinterpreted, I think. Singleness is not the supernatural ability to live the rest of your life without a desire for sex with somebody. The gift of singleness. The gift of singleness is not, I wonder if I have the gift of singleness. Some supernatural ability that God suddenly communicates, yep, you got the gift, buddy, because you don't have desires for a wife, so lucky you. I don't think that's what the Bible is teaching, because Paul also views marriage as a gift from the Lord. Both have unique blessings and challenges. Singleness itself is the gift from the Lord as is marriage a gift from the Lord. Both are gifts with unique callings. And in Paul's context, with the current crisis going on, probably a famine, and in the light of kingdom advance, Paul views the gift of singleness as very appealing and commends it to the Corinthians. The single person filled with self-control by the help of the Spirit of Jesus is able to devote themselves to Jesus in a single-minded way that someone who is married is simply not able to. That's going to be Paul's point that we'll look at next week. So in conclusion, we've seen that the Corinthians make a statement that Paul answers in four distinct steps, climaxing in his call to singleness at the very end. The Corinthians basically say, it's good for a man not to use women outside of marriage for sexual pleasure. And Paul answers by saying, but if you're married, you and your wife should be enjoying regular giving of your bodies." Your bodies belong to each other. And God intends it that way. So I'm going to close by saying two things this doesn't mean, and two things that these points do mean. First, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that sex in marriage is a way to avoid sexual temptation, he is not saying that regular sex between spouses removes sexual temptation. No, many men who are absolutely drowning in pornography and unrepented of sexual sin, often use their wives' bodies to act out their twisted fantasies. Sometimes they even use this verse as a spiritual club to beat their wives into submitting to their twisted sexual desires. And mm-hmm. I assume it could go the other way as well, with mm-hmm. wives... Using this against husbands. This is not what Paul is advocating for. Marriage does not save from lust. Jesus does. One twisted way of thinking, I think, that has crept into the hearts of many Christian women is that if I don't give my husband regular sex and keep his sex tank full, then his heart and his eyes are going to wander and it's going to be my fault. Refusing to satisfy his sexual desires. This has often put wives who are exhausted, in pain, really sick, or really sad about something, or <laughs> dealing with trauma in their past in this position where they feel like they have to please their husbands to keep him from sin. There's so much wrong with this dynamic. It's so twisted, it's hard to know where to even start attacking me. It's not what Paul's saying. If a person lusts, it is their fault, it is their problem, it is their heart, it's their eyes. A husband or a wife's lust is their problem, and theirs alone. It's between them and the Lord. If a husband's wallowing in pornography, it's because his heart is filled with lust and ingratitude to the giver of good gifts. It's not the wife's fault, ever, period. Period. Regular sex will not deliver from the sin of lust. Only the power of Jesus' Spirit and help of fellow Christians in prayer can replace lust with love of neighbor. So when Paul says sex and marriage helps one resist temptation, he's simply saying if you are married and you have sexual desires, then you ought to be channeling those sexual desires into your marriage in God-honoring ways, not in outside your marriage. And in verses to come, he'll say the same thing about people who are not married but have a deep desire to experience sexual relationship with somebody. It's not wrong for those people to pursue marriage. They don't sin. But the ideal, according to Paul, is self control, which is a fruit of the spirit. And so this is the first error to avoid here. Sex doesn't save from temptation. The Spirit does through self-control. And one of the ways that the Spirit gives self-control in a marriage is by helping a husband or a wife channel their sexual desires towards their spouse to enjoy with their spouse, not at the expense of their spouse. When Paul tells husbands and wives, this is the second thing, That they're obligated to have sex with each other. He's not saying there's no circumstances in which a husband and a wife might not need to abstain for a time. This is where a husband's call to love his wife like Christ loves the church, laying down his life for her, it will lead a godly husband to not demand sex from his wife, who's exhausted, tired, pregnant, sad, overwhelmed, dealing with past trauma. Here's an example. Can you imagine a man at the hospital visiting his wife who's dying of stage four cancer and he's trying to get some sexual favor from her? You're obligated. Your body belongs to me. If you don't, I'm going to go out and lust. We, we were, I would hope we would recoil from that dynamic, that idea. Know what is his calling in that moment. He has a Savior who says, Come to me, and I will give you rest for your soul. There are exceptions to this, important exceptions, but the general principle holds true. Two things that this means you are married, so, two things it doesn't mean doors that I think are important to close, especially in our context. I and mean, for Paul, it's shocking enough that he's telling husbands to have reg- regular sex with their wives. Like, that's just... Whoa, whoa really? Um, so here's two things this means. If you are married and you're not having regular sex with each other, and notice there's no amount of time I gave um, every other day, every three days, every five day. I'm not. Come together again, says Paul, and agree. Let's work towards agreement on these things. Talk about them. If you're not doing that, it's usually a good indicator that all's not well between you. Where you see smoke, you always say, if I see smoke, it's like it, there's a fire, right? There's a fire there. A sexless marriage is often the smoke that says, there's a, there's a fire going on, and, and we, we want to work on that. It, it's not something that we, we should feel massive guilt about. It's something we run to Jesus <coughs> for help with. We, we need help working through this we're not alone but a lack of physical intimacy is one of the first signs when two humans are moving apart and even the best marriages when you're mad at each other you don't feel like being close i i can say that don't want to be all huggy huggy when i'm angry we just had an argument all right those patterns go deeper and deeper. It's a sign we are moving apart. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Again, there may be practical reasons why it's not going to work or you're not able to do that together. Talk about it. Grieve it together. Weep over it. That's okay. But vulnerability is so important. But there are rooms. There, there, there are reasons. There are reasons why a sexless marriage is a sign that something's wrong. Maybe trust has been broken. Vulnerability at the level of sexuality is essential and it's excruciating when trust is broken. So, the, sol- the solution to this. Brokenness is not, go get a room and fix it. There may be deep wounds that need to be worked through. And my encouragement to you, I I don't know your stories. This is usually not an area of life that people like to talk about. It's not a sermon that preachers wake up and want to preach, right? Um, Listen, God wants this for our good. If this is you, don't just wait for things to get better. I promise they won't on their own. They never, ever do. Marriage takes work. Healing takes time. It takes help. It takes both partners saying, I want to work on this. Let's talk about it together. It's <clears throat> see, seeing it as a, as a problem. The second thing I want to say as we close, sex in marriage is not the pinnacle of God's calling on a Christian, married or single. self control contentment in the Lord and a radical devotion to Him is at the heart of our Christian calling. Self-control is the process by which God restores control of you to you by the power of His Spirit. For those of us who are married and for those who are married and not married, or those of us who are married and find marriage to be a deep struggle, know that Jesus promises that he is enough. No matter what you're calling in life, no matter where you're at, Jesus summons you and he says, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My prayer has been and is that this sermon, if you are married and if sex is a struggle right now, I don't want this sermon to sound like a burden to you. Like, oh, I've got to do one more thing, and I, I, I just don't even know how. Okay, God wants to hold for something beautiful, two bodies sharing completely with trust and vulnerability, and he wants us to long for that and ask his help to work that in our marriage. And he gives us an example. He gives us an example that's symbolized by the Lord's table. I'm going to turn and close with Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or blemish or wrinkle, but holy and blameless. (laughs) In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. you take care of your body when it's hurt? Do you give it a band-aid? Do you try not to walk on that wounded area? Love your wife As you love and care for your own body, she belongs to you. You are one flesh. You belong to her. He who loves his wife loves himself. When you care for your body, you're caring for yourself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The Lord's Supper is the symbol that we get to taste and hold in our hands of Jesus himself's radical, self-giving of his whole body to his people on the cross. He didn't hold anything back. He gave all of himself for all of us. This is our calling. This is our example. And we, as the symbolic bride, the wife of Jesus, okay, Again, not in a sexual way, in a way that sexual intercourse points towards. It is the picture of our union with the Lord. That self-giving, that is pictured by the cross where Jesus gave himself completely to us and calls us to give ourselves completely to him, holding nothing back.